I'm Catherine. And I'm Nancy. And this is Side Effects. If you've ever seen a horror movie, there's a certain formula most of them follow. In the beginning, there's an allusion to some danger, but it seems far off or vague. A popular trope is to have someone who warns about the peril, but is dismissed as crazy or paranoid. Then there's the slow build of tension. People become more and more suspicious of each other, irritable and scared, and you're wondering when everything will come to a head. In that way, 2020 is like a horror movie. We watched as coronavirus cases rose in China, but it seemed like a localized outbreak. Then, there were pockets in the US, but we were told that it was nothing to be concerned about. Those who warned about lockdown were quickly dismissed. Then, as the outbreak spread, suddenly we were worried about stepping outside or gathering with friends. Anyone with a cough seemed like a threat. But everyone can remember the moment where we had to say goodbye to what we understood to be normal and face the horror. Previously on our show, we heard from our guests about their lives before the coronavirus. But on this episode, we explore the turning point when the world was changed irrevocably. So yeah, I just remember going to school. It was a nice day. You know, I went to school. I took the bus and I was talking to this girl uh, who I've known. And we're just talking about, like, it's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time. In our first episode of the podcast, we covered Rudy's backstory as a first-generation college student, from his mother's journey across the U.S.-Mexico border to his current role as a student mentor at Sacramento State's Improve Your Tomorrow organization. The escalation of the COVID-19 pandemic in early March caught many off guard. We went from postponing Coachella to a statewide California lockdown to the worst economy since the Great Depression in the span of just a few weeks. Rudy had been keeping up with the news, seeing other colleges, one by one, post their updates on a postponed commencement and switch to virtual learning. He wondered when Sac State would take their turn. The announcement came on March 12th. He was in class when the email delivering the news appeared in his inbox, only a few minutes before he was scheduled to take a midterm. Um, I was meeting up with some classmates because we had a, a group midterm. It was our senior seminar. So in this particular case, we were taking the exam. But before that, we received an email from uh, the president, President Nelson from Sac State. He usually emails us a lot, random things, but lately this whole week, he's been saying how he's been monitoring the, the COVID-19 pandemic and, and is ready to make any calls that are needed. And then at that moment, I remember reading the email because I get you know, all my emails on my phone, and so does everybody else. Right, right before we took the midterm, everybody in that class was just kind of like in, in hysteria, like just having conversations like, oh, what's going to happen? Are we going to graduate? This and that. And it was right, right before an, an essay exam which was, it just had everybody all confused and stirred up. Um, And I remember just thinking like, damn, is school really going to be canceled? Like, what's going to happen?
President Nelson informed the students not to come back to campus the next day. Instead, they had the next week off as the university and its professors took on the tall task of transitioning to a virtual workspace. But before Rudy and his classmates could act on President Nelson's directions, they still had to finish their exam. It was just hard to concentrate because we only had that block of time to do the work and then we received the email, so that took away like 10, 15 minutes to get started. And then during it, we're not there, like we're there physically, but not there mentally because who knows, we didn't know what was gonna happen. There's a lot of uncertainty. That uncertainty lingered on his mind for the rest of the week. He stayed at his apartment in Sacramento, planning and waiting for further news while his roommates began moving back to their respective homes. On March 17th, five days after President Nelson's announcement, Governor Gavin Newsom issued a statewide shelter-in-place order. I had to make a decision whether it was to stay here or be able to go back home because I didn't know how strict it was or what I had to do. And I was already, all my roommates have left home, so I was the last one here. My apartment gets kind of creepy at night. Like, it's all dark and it's just me in the back room. I mean, it's just like a, I feel like it's just a general feeling of like, okay, so what do I do now? You know, it's just me, the PS4, my phone. And, and I feel that gets old quick. And I, I, like, I just want to be around my family at this, at this moment. And on that same Tuesday, the 17th, Sac State officially released their statement on its upcoming commencement ceremony. It would be postponed. It was a lot to digest, and there was a lot to miss. The speed at which everything was moving made it hard to say goodbyes, and there was no real opportunity for closure. Sacramento gets really beautiful in the springtime. It's not too hot, not cold. Um, the flowers start blooming on the trees. It's, just, it's, it's literally so beautiful, so many trees. I love it. Just the whole environment of being there. It's my senior year, and I, and I don't necessarily hate school. Well, personally, honestly, I don't like assignments, but I mean, I love the action of getting up in the morning, getting ready, and then going to school. Um, I have a lot of friends. I'm in some clubs, and my roommates, we shit, we get to we get together with other people and just party, you know, just go out on a beautiful night. So I think from school, what I was going to miss the most, well, like I said, was the environment. And I like my classes. Uh, very interesting. My senior seminar, my instructional communication class, I had the the best professor ever in that class. And we had like a sense of community in the classroom where we can be very transparent about how we felt towards towards anything. So, um, you know, that feels great knowing that you're a part of something and it makes you just want to just want to be there. Especially with the weather being nice. I'm such a like sunny person type of weather. So anytime I could be outside when it's nice and warm without the wind and everything, it's just a big plus for me. That was my last year, so I'm just planning to give it my all. So. You know, so I just definitely miss everything. To Rudy, Sacramento was much more than just a place to go to college. It was a symbol of independence and freedom, a chance to spread his wings and truly become his own person. Freedom, like that's what I love and appreciate from when I'm in Sacramento. I get to take care of myself. You know, I get to be a young adult and hang out with my friends and put in the work when it comes to college and everything by myself. The life I had out there before this was just, you know, I absolutely loved it. I go to work. I loved what I, what I did and currently do. Um, you know, school, that's a struggle on its own, but, you know, something I had to go through. It's my personal, my personal mission. And then 
just being an adult, you know, cooking my own food, burning it on accident, and just, you know, living that life is, is very underrated and something I definitely appreciated, that freedom. And not having to come home and have to be a role model. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it is a responsibility that takes a lot of energy. Sacramento was Sacramento. And home was just different. When I come home here, it's like I'm reporting to my parents kind of. Not necessarily. They're not like strict or anything, but I still have to communicate them more and more, like a little more, more than often. Because out there, they know I'm doing my thing and, you know. But right here, it's like, oh, I went to the store, you know, and I'm letting them know. And then when I'm here at my dad's house with my siblings, I kind of need to be on point all, time, all the time, just in a way where I can't. It's kind of hard to explain, but, you know, just as a role model, I kind of have to carry yourself in a certain fashion because there are people who look up to, look up to you. Um, so I'm a little more and more on point, more, more polished. And, you know, I mean that with all due respect. It's not like I'm acting fake. It's just... You know, I definitely want to set an example for my brother and sister. So when I'm out here, you know, I, I do my best to um, to just teach them, you know, right from wrong and provide proper guidance. So I think more along the lines of that. And when I've been back in SAC, it's like, you know, I get home and I don't have like a care in the world. You know, I just chill, drink a beer and watch TV or whatever, you know, whatever I want to do. Back home. And plus my apartment back in Sacramento is actually bigger. So I just love space. I have, I have like a pretty decent sized living room. I just lay down and best naps right here my little brother has good amount, a lot of energy so you know it's you know it's, it's it's pros and cons to each of it that week was a whirlwind a seemingly never-ending cycle of new adjustments with the only constant being a nagging feeling of uncertainty it was hard to make big decisions because the next day there might be a new update a new looming factor that might emerge and unsettle the plan in the end Rudy decided to pack his bags and head back to Salinas Valley. That was the last one here. So I knew I had to go home. And it was crazy because on the way home, I literally seen like 15 highway patrols throughout my three-hour drive. So that was crazy in itself. It made me think, is it this serious? No, I don't know. But So that was a huge turning point. My mentality at first was pretty, I feel like it was maybe unhealthy. I don't know. I'm not going to lie, over these past few days, my mentality has been keep pushing through no matter how tired I am um, in regards to school since I'm so close to being done. Just trying to stay optimistic, kind of where my mentality's been, just, you know, trying to be healthy. That's my biggest thing. That's Rudy Regalado, sent home from his college in Sacramento. Universities had a lot of responsibility to bear when deciding when and how to send students home and face that same level of scrutiny this coming fall when deciding when and how to reinstate classes. The hope being that there will be some semblance of normalcy in the near future. Next, we'll hear from someone whose plans were not only off track, but derailed entirely within a few months and for whom normalcy may no longer be possible. Stay tuned for part two, Colin. Come the middle of March, everybody got sent home. And then two weeks after that, we were furloughed. And then 30 days after that, we were, we were laid off. Uh, it was a quick, quick, quick cycle. When we last talked to Colin, he was living in St. Louis, 
where he had moved to in the 1990s to start his job at Enterprise. He had a lot that he was looking forward to, wrapping up his term as a board member of the local Jeep club, traveling with his wife Becky, and reaching his 25th year at Enterprise. In February, we were actually revamping the charter and approach for vulnerability management for the company. We were doing two and three sessions a week, four or five of us around a table, drawing on whiteboards and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it was really businesses as usual. And so we were continuing to progress with plans around how do we make ourselves more agile? How do we do more things? And kind of like the market that, that turned on a dime. And all of a sudden, come first part of March, we started saying, we're not going to talk about that stuff as much anymore. Things progressed quickly. And come middle of March, they were instructed to work from home to wait out the pandemic. They basically closed our campuses and sent us all home, working from home, but still at home. We all believed that we were coming back. We're all going to come back to this company. The company's been around for 63 years, I guess. And so there was no hint that we weren't going to come back. We didn't realize how bad COVID was going to be. We didn't realize how it was going to affect our, our industry. Coronavirus continues to affect the economy. We're shutting hotels, so all of those employees are being furloughed or laid off Agencies right now. Furlough the majority of its 130,000 employees. The company also says the employees will not be paid during Essential this time. Central Health and Duluth cut 500 non-medical staff. Today, Marriott announced it will begin furloughing tens of thousands of employees. 47 million workers could soon be out of a job, leading to an unemployment rate of 32 percent. So March 30th was a Monday. That weekend on Sunday, Becky and I got emails for a meeting that didn't have a list of who was gonna be there and was a mandatory meeting. We kinda had a sense that this was gonna be a furlough because it looked a lot like the 08 stuff. So uh, yeah, I don't think either of us slept. We laid in bed and talked for a long time. Uh, a lot of what ifs. The news turned out to be true. Both of them were furloughed for a month. For Colin, it was a moment that almost didn't feel real. I tend to be a schedule guy. So typically my clock would go off at five in the morning, get up, take a shower, fix breakfast, come downstairs, and I'd start working by you know, 6.15, 6.30. Um, the first week we turned off the alarm clocks and just slept. We slept until we woke up. And that has been what we've continued to do. One of the things that, that we've tried not to do is get so incredibly focused or obsessive maybe on just finding a job. We've tried to take this time that's been given us doing things like mowing the yard, uh, you know, just, just kind of normal mundane stuff. We've tried to do some things that have been therapeutic for us, I guess. Going out working on the Jeep, for example, just sort of mentally, sort of mental health kind of things to not be so focused on, hey, the job's not there yet. During this period of limbo, Becky and Colin both fell into a new routine, spending several hours a day job hunting and interviewing, and the rest of their time investing in things they found solace in, their hobbies, their communities, and most importantly, each other. For better or for worse, the coronavirus uh, pandemic has really 
I think brought us closer together. Some days she's the rock and some days I'm the rock. It kind of depends upon who needs what. And so that has been a interesting, I think, side effect of this that I don't think you could have predicted that that would have been the case. You know, we, we sort of have taken our roles. Um, I'm a cancer survivor. So Becky's trying to take care of me and make sure that I stay safe by keeping me out of harm's way. I sit back and play with the numbers to try to keep her safe. And so it's, it's just a great yin and yang almost kind of thing uh, with you know, what we're bringing, what we're doing, and what we're trying to do for each other. April, it became pretty obvious that the business was hurting and hurting really bad. And so the decision was made then to, to lay off all of us that were that were furloughed to try to save the business. And so we rolled through the tail end of April knowing that, you know, we had a clock ticking on us and uh, we had our final meeting on April 20th. And that's the, that's the last one we had. If I remember correctly, I think... I, I think we, I think we got in the Jeep, did a, uh, did an order from, from five guys for lunch, uh, did curbside, brought it back home and just sat around the table and enjoyed the rest of the day. I mean, I, I think we had already faced enough of those demons that we just kind of said, okay, it's done. And, uh, kind of went about our business. It was one of the healthiest things we could do was just accept what had happened. There's nothing we can do about it. Nothing we could change. And at that point, you know, we could let all the horses go because we, we, we knew at that point that, uh, that we weren't coming back. The day that he was laid off was one day away from his 25th anniversary at Enterprise. And though he had anticipated the layoff, processing it wasn't easy. It's kind of like a relationship a little bit where one half of the relationship has moved on and you're sort of left holding the bag and picking up the pieces. And I feel like those of us that, that got furloughed and then laid off were kind of in that scenario. The company moved on. In my case, I, I think losing that, losing that family has, has definitely been impactful. They're folks that I talked to, you know, that I, that I was talking to every day because they were part of my team, right? So they're part of the sort of the heartbeat of the day. And that, instantly got severed. At the same time, having to look for a new job in earnest presented its own challenges. You have some humbling moments in there. I mean, the first time you sign up for unemployment in your whole 40 plus year work history, that's that's tough. That's a tough pill to swallow the first time. It's the first time that we've looked for jobs in 25 years. And that arena has changed dramatically since the mid 90s. In our first episode, we talked to Colin about his journey at Enterprise. He found his way to the job in 1995 after meeting a guy who worked for the company and talking to him for three hours. This guy, as Colin described, was like his twin from another mother. Two years after starting at Enterprise, he'd met his wife Becky, and when they got married, the folks from the company had a huge presence at their wedding. Enterprise was also where he grew to love the management role and where he got the opportunity to mentor younger members of his team. 
having to look for another gig that matched up to its experiences at Enterprise seemed almost impossible. And knowing this, it changed the way that Colin thought about his next job. I still would have really liked to have been that, you know, 30, 35 year guy retiring uh, from a company someplace. You know, that would have been very cool. But that's not going to happen. And I, I, you know, it is what it is. And so uh, I, th- I think you, you'd start to maybe look a little differently at work, a little differently at, you know, do I need to burn two extra hours a day at the office every day for the rest of my life? And probably the answer is no, because I think there's things that you start to discover are a little more important. One of those things, of course, was the Jeep community. And though it wasn't the same as meeting up in person, Colin managed to find other ways to recreate the community gatherings they had. Typically, we, we have a restaurant that closes down just for us for Jeep Club meeting once a month. And so we'll go there and they have this big buffet for us and it's just an awesome event. Um, but after the meeting, we go out and talk Jeeps in the parking lot, right? So we look at what people have done to their rigs and get some ideas about squeaks and creaks and things that people are hearing in their rigs and try to get some help with. So emulating that in a virtual setting is really hard. So I took my laptop out to the garage where my Jeep was, kind of walked around the, around the Jeep with the laptop to show off the things I've been doing to the Jeep lately. And in some ways, revisiting those communities that he cared so dearly about helped fill the gap in his life that was formerly Enterprise. I think it's really easy to, when somebody says, well, what do you do? And we don't usually say, well, I'm a Jeep guy. We don't say our hobbies. We don't say I'm married and have three children. We don't say families. We say our jobs. That's what we talk about. And I think post-COVID, I think the tendency to define myself by what I'm doing job-wise is going to be less. It's, it's what I live for rather than what I work for. Our guest, Colin Wright, up until recently, an employee of Enterprise. Next on the show, someone whose turning point was a series of mixed messages, and navigating that didn't just affect herself, but also affects those who she takes care of. Part 3, Jenny. I think probably in early February, I got an email from a really beloved professor of mine who is over 60 years old. And he had said, you know, I'm emailing you, you know, I'm supposed to take this trip to Arizona. You know, I'm a pretty healthy guy, but I am over 60 years old. Like, you think it's safe for me to take this flight? And I remember responding and being like, it, you know, it should be fine. Like, be careful, wash your hands. If you have a mask, like definitely. But, um, you know, there are a lot of dangers in everything that we do, you know, driving to the airport is a risk, like this and that, flu, whatever. Um, so of course, be careful, take precautions, but, um, you know, I think you're fine. <laughs> and now I, I think back to that with such horror. The tipping point for Jenny Sai was also a bit of a wake-up call. Last we spoke, she told us about being a student learning about the implicit biases in medicine that affected patient care. 
When she entered medical school, however, she was disappointed by how few of these ideas were addressed by her classes. Now, as a resident, she tries to understand how race, sexuality, and economic status can shape her patients' experiences. Stationed in Connecticut for her rotation just before the coronavirus hit, she and her colleagues heard what was happening in New York City. A huge surge in the infection rate, overcrowded hospitals, and not enough PPE and respirators for those who needed them. Hearing the news, with New York only a few hours away, gave them just enough time to get prepared for what they knew was coming. And so hearing the reports early on about how they were totally overwhelmed of how they ran out of PPE, how they were using like rain ponchos. And, you know, I had friends who were residents there like wearing the same mask for like two weeks at a time. And by that point, witnessing that epicenter just a couple hours away with us kind of, I think, erased doubts that what we were dealing with was something very serious. So that certainly, you know, helped shape the way COVID ended up looking at our hospital and the way it looked before we kind of really got hit with it. So I think in some ways we were really helped uh, in that regard. And that's, that feels tough to say because, you know, what was the cost of it? You know, the, the, the cost was so high, but, but just to say, I do think that watching New York kind of fall before us kind of kicked us into gear. We asked Jenny what it's like taking care of a COVID patient who walks into the hospital and what goes into a visit like that. The most common kind of presentation of COVID that I saw, which was somebody comes in, fever, maybe a cough, you gown up, you know, you put on your N95, your face shield, your gloves, your gown, your booties, you go in, you hear a little bit more about how long it's been happening, who they live with, um, how severe it is. A big piece of information is their oxygen level um, and also their oxygen level after they have done some sort of activity, like walked around the ED. So you link them to the, to the oxygen monitor and have them walk around and see if it decreases by a significant amount. Early on, we were getting chest x-rays on everyone and those were portable so they don't go down to radiology that the x-ray machine comes to them and if they're in a room with a glass door they take the x-ray through the glass door so they don't have to have further exposure um that was a a like process that i did many many times sometimes to the point where the attending physician would say don't don't go in there, just call them on their phone for the initial, you know, intake. You don't need to be coughing in their potential virus dust, especially if they're coming in with a high fever and a cough or, or sometimes even with a positive COVID test. Despite all the measures to protect herself and others with PPE, Sometimes there were even those within her department who were skeptical of such measures. Since social distancing began, 
men have been less likely to wear masks than women, calling them shameful, a sign of weakness, and not cool, according to one Gallup poll. Jenny actually caught some of her male colleagues being openly critical of their peers for wearing PPE, despite working in healthcare. And like, I remember a male nurse putting on an N95 to go see a patient. And like, I remember overhearing like some of the, some of the other individuals, like basically taking down his masculinity for, for, you know, needing to wear a mask. Like, what are you really worried about? We work in a hospital, like take that off. That's ridiculous. And kind of reiterations of that, of like, ooh, who are these like, super anxious people who are germaphobes and like there was like this sense of like who's overly anxious like who's not brave who's like feminine versus masculine who's like you know cowboy nothing can stop me and then on the other side like even on the same shifts or even in the next day the opposite would happen where some people wouldn't be wearing masks and other coworkers would be like, you're, you know, you're putting us all in danger. That's ridiculous. You need to put on a mask right now, which is, which is a tough environment to work in, you know, to feel like you're, you're going to be made fun of. Because <laughs> it's, it's awful to feel made fun of or humiliated for something that is scary you know I I remember overhearing them talking about this male nurse and and talking to this male nurse and just feeling so awful and and wanting that to stop because to to be bullied for like a deep fear I think is very painful um and hearing it was painful. And I think what that does too is it it changes the actions and behaviors of people who are listening, not even the people who face it. And it did get to the point where when things started ramping up and I, and I did get more scared and I wanted to be more proactive about PPE, sometimes I didn't because I was worried that they were going to say the same things to me, like, you're wasting that. Why do you need that? you're overreacting, that's silly of you. Um, and I, I felt it filtering into my decision-making consciously or unconsciously. All that preparation, however, might have been premature. Rather than becoming flooded with COVID patients, the emergency room was empty for the most part. So shifts were actually quite slow. Like I, on many shifts, brought a book, which I don't ever do. Part of it was people were really staying home. uh, And it kind of remains to be seen about what that means in terms of catching heart attacks or missing things that we would have otherwise caught because they would have otherwise come to the emergency department. But the, the patient load at the beginning, really just shrunk. In turn, the patients that did show up were sicker. Jenny and her team would go from tedium to extreme caution, taking care of COVID patients who were showing symptoms. The stress of the environment was enough to wear down Jenny during this time. 
Not knowing who to follow, especially when a lot of her peers were learning and reacting at the same time she was. Looking to leaders, but those leaders sometimes were unreliable. There's definitely a process, and now I feel more able to, certainly. But at the beginning, you know, there was this, this uncertainty of, like, am I overreacting? And so not really feeling the confidence to to be really strong about asserting yourself or advocating for certain things because you just didn't know if you were right or wrong. I think later on it became easier, but that in-between time was really rocky. Not really rocky, but was was certainly a time of, of kind of walking more on eggshells and not totally feeling empowered to to speak or make decisions or demand certain things. And it's it's hard to refuse to do anything as a resident, especially as an intern, especially if you get a direct instruction. And I will say even now, that feels almost impossible. <laughs> so I think that will always be a, a part of the unknowing. Jenny talks a lot about the power structures built into the field of medicine, things that can't really be addressed under crisis. When push comes to shove, you just have to choose who to follow and hope that you made the right decision. It's difficult to kind of process, especially when these are people who are your supervisors, who are you know, the experts who are the people who are your teachers, to have somebody tell you one day, like, this is absolutely going to blow over, we're totally fine, nothing should close, and then have someone say, this is totally going to overrun the hospital, this will be the defining public health moment of your entire career, and we are really about to see some bad stuff. Medical resident Jenny Sai, who currently works on reserve back at her home. Next time on Side Effects, we'll hear from the rest of our guests about their turning points and how they handled the transition to shelter in place, if they were given one. Thank you so much to our guests for speaking with us and our listeners for tuning in. If you like the podcast, be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and share with your friends. You can follow Side Effects on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn under the handle at SideEffectsPod. That's at S-I-D-E-E-F-F-E-C-T-S-P-O-D. Until next time, stay safe and healthy.